0: Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of progress. This is the third episode of Dementia Decoded, a special five-part series presented by the Academy's Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative, with generous support from the Dana Foundation. Episode three, Decisions, Negotiations, and Choices. We spent a lot of time in the last episode looking at the fundamental physiology of Alzheimer's disease, about which there's quite a lot we know and quite a lot we don't know. It's a fascinating scientific question and one we could have explored for many more hours without reaching the end of it. But it's time to take a different tack. a move towards some very practical questions facing millions of people who are struggling with this disease right now. And we'll start at the very beginning. Let's say you're noticing some changes in a loved one, one of your parents say. They've begun forgetting things a lot more often. Where they put things. What they were looking for when they walked into the living room. It takes an extra beat, maybe, to think of the names of the neighbors across the street. And you're beginning to worry. What do you do? Well, the first thing to remember is that not all forgetfulness is dementia. People with perfectly healthy brains forget things all the time. Here's Ruth Drew a licensed practicing counselor who serves as National Director of Family and Information Services for the Alzheimer's Association, followed by Dr. Richard Mayhew, Director of the Center for Alzheimer's Research at Columbia University.
1: There are things that fall within the normal ranges. Any one of us can misplace our keys. Any one of us can forget where we put something or forget somebody's name just long enough to embarrass ourselves, and then we remember it. Those are things that can happen to any one of us and that happen more frequently the older we get, typically.
2: Everybody is forgetful and people forget where they put their glasses, they forget that they were supposed to pick up milk and bread on the way home from work, or they can't remember where they put their keys down or where they parked their car. When that kind of behavior uh, happens extraordinarily frequently, uh, or all the time, where you're repeating yourself, where you're saying the same thing,
0: you know, moments later, Uh, that usually indicates that there's a problem. And so it's a pattern of forgetfulness that might be troublesome, particularly if it's accompanied by significant changes in someone's daily routine. Often it's a family member or a friend who will notice these and start to be concerned. Here's Llewellyn Barkin, president and CEO of the Alzheimer's Association's New York City chapter.
3: If you're a family member, you may notice, because you're with somebody all the time, that they're not doing things the the way they used to. You may notice that mom is not making the coffee anymore. She just sort of stopped because even though she used to make grind the beans and put it in the pot and turn everything on, somehow there's something about the way she's doing that that's just off. She may, um, the communication she has may be different. She may have forgotten, gone to the grocery store twice for the same item in a way that seems a little odd.
0: Noticing changes like that, even small ones in an older person you care about, absolutely warrants a trip to the doctor if only just to reassure everyone that there's nothing to worry about. Here's Dr. Jason Karlowish, a practicing geriatrician and professor of medicine and medical ethics at the University of Pennsylvania.
2: If there's someone you're close to who you have noticed a change in their cognitive abilities, your goal ought to be to get this figured out, what's the cause of them? And not simply leap to, oh, because they're older, this must be Alzheimer's disease but rather to just step back and say, I'm worried about their cognitive problems, what might be the cause, and how, and how am I going to get that figured out? And I think in most cases, it's getting them to be seen by a qualified healthcare professional who can work up an older adult who's got a cognitive complaint.
0: Often, this is not such a simple thing to do, though, because there's a lot that prevents people from getting diagnosed for their memory problems. A diagnosis of Alzheimer's or another neurodegenerative condition isn't like a diagnosis of the flu or even a diagnosis of cancer. It can very quickly change your relationship to everyone and everything around you. The way people speak to you and the assumptions they make about what you're capable of. Often people would just rather not know if that's the track they're on. You know, it's very interesting, in some sense
2: it's one of those diseases which is like the gun on the in the table in the room. You know, if you sit down and have a conversation with someone and you know, place a place revolver on the table and say let's talk, I mean it changes the dynamic of the conversation even though, you know, it has nothing to do with that. The emotional baggage that surrounds Alzheimer's is not trite. It's, it's fairly heavy and, and, and for many quite burdensome. You know, if you label someone a patient with Alzheimer's disease, it engenders a whole series of assumptions about what the person can or can't do. Suppose you had begun this podcast interview with me the statement I'm interviewing Dr. Jason Karlowicz, who's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And then we proceeded to have the same conversation we're having. I bet you many people listening would be just waiting for something that would give them the evidence that clearly Jason Karlowicz has cognitive impairment. If we had begun this conversation, this is a conversation with Dr. Jason Karlowicz, he has
0: hypertension. I, I don't
2: think you're you know, people would forget it and move on and listen to what I had to say.
0: The diagnosis of Alzheimer's can also be seen as a huge step in an older person handing over their right to make decisions about their lives to someone else, their children often. This is a complex and emotionally fraught situation that parents and children would both often rather put off until the last possible moment. And that often prevents people from going to the doctor about cognitive problems, fear that it will hasten conversations about the future that they would just rather not have. Here's Dr. Dina Davis, Endowed Chair in Health and Professor of Bioethics at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania.
4: The situation with people with Alzheimer's is almost all of them have, for long periods of their lives, been active, competent, rational decision makers whose decisions were respected. These are people, you know, who had jobs and careers and went shopping and had checking accounts and made all kinds of decisions. and people who commanded respect from the generations below them. So that is an extremely difficult minefield to navigate. I mean, my mom taught me how to drive, right? And my mom was the one who decided when I got the car keys and what my curfew was when I was a teen. And all of a sudden, I'm turning around and saying to my mom, I don't think you can drive anymore. I don't think, you know, you're you're forgetting where you are, you're endangering yourself, you're endangering others. I think that you have to give me the car keys. I mean, it's one thing to say that to your teenager. That's kind of the way it's supposed to be, right? But it's not kind of supposed to be the other way around.
0: For all of these emotional minefields, though, if these kinds of problems seem to be popping up, getting a good diagnosis is really crucial. One huge reason is that often something that looks like it might be neurodegenerative dementia isn't. And it can often be something that is eminently curable. Something as simple as a vitamin deficiency can cause cognitive problems. And in a case like that, a pill or even a change in diet can usually cure someone completely. Older people are often taking many different medications prescribed by several different doctors and that can lead to over-medication or combinations of different medicines that don't play well together which can absolutely lead to a fuzzy-headedness that can look very much like dementia. Psychological problems like depression can often look like dementia, too. Here's Ms. Drew again.
1: An infection, uh, a hormonal imbalance, normal pressure, hydrocephalus, there are all kinds of different things that can cause these sorts of symptoms and may have very effective treatments and possibly be able to be reversed completely. So it's really important for, for that reason alone um, to make sure that a person gets a good diagnosis because you'd hate to have a situation where they had something going on that, that could have been either halted or remediated in some way or, or possibly reversed altogether and that because of fear, people didn't get the medical treatment that they need.
0: Here's Dr. Karlowish.
2: So that's your goal. And then the challenge is how to get them there. And I think there people struggle because I think if you, it requires some degree of of, of finesse oftentimes. You don't have to get the person to admit every single thing you've noticed, and that's why we need to go see a doctor. You you know, because oftentimes patients either lack awareness of or are resistant to the full picture of what the problems may be. And, And so this is a conversation, and it's probably a conversation that's going to unfold over time.
1: One is just dealing with a regular checkup. So you, you always start with a primary physician anyway. So instead of making a big deal about it, Could be a matter of calling the physician or emailing them ahead of time and saying, you know, I'm noticing some changes in my spouse or my mom or dad or whoever it is. I'm noticing some changes. Here's what I'm seeing. I'm a little concerned. I wonder if you would do some uh, screenings to see if there may be something going on. And if there is, then uh, would you please recommend the next steps that we should take? Um, And- that can get the ball rolling.
0: Once you've seen your primary care doctor, and it seems like something is amiss, it's a really good idea to then see a specialist, someone who can really zoom in on the problem and narrow down the possible causes. Neurologists, geriatricians, or psychiatrists all might specialize in dementia diagnosis.
2: My my advice would be, um, if so I find the neurologist And I call the office and I would just ask candidly, you know, um, how skilled is Dr. Smith or how often does Dr. Smith see and take care of and work up older adults with memory complaints? And if the answer is, well actually Dr. Smith does general neurology with a focus on epilepsy and MS, it's probably not the doctor to go to. Similarly with the geriatrician uh, and or
0: internist and or um, uh, psychiatrist. And I think it's just a candid question to ask. And one of the great successes in our understanding of neurodegenerative dementia is that doctors have gotten really good at diagnosing it. When it was first discovered, Alzheimer's disease could only be definitively diagnosed post-mortem, by dissecting someone's brain and looking for the telltale amyloid plaques and tau tangles that we discussed in the last episode. But now it can be diagnosed with something like 90% success while someone is still alive, often when they're just starting to develop symptoms. Some of this has to do with imaging technology, which has improved by leaps and bounds over the past few decades. Here's Dr. Scott Small, professor of neurology at Columbia University and director of the Taub Institute for Research on Alzheimer's Disease and the Aging Brain.
5: So imaging is essentially cameras that take snapshots of the brain. And imaging comes in many flavors. There are many things we can visualize now in the brain. Um, There are three fundamental distinctions. One is imaging tool, are imaging tools that look at the structure of the brain so if you have a stroke or a bleed I can see that with structural MRI the other is what's sometimes called histological imaging which is at some level the coolest and most novel and innovative imaging tools that have come um, that have been optimized recently. We, can, we talked about amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. These are abnormal clumping of proteins that Alzheimer saw under the microscope in dead brains that have been sliced. These new imaging tools that fall under the division of histological imaging could actually visualize these amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles in living subjects. It's quite remarkable.
0: Here's Dr. Risa Sperling, Director of the Center for Alzheimer's Disease Research and Treatment at Massachusetts General Hospital and Professor of Neurology at Harvard.
6: About 10 years ago, a PET scan, and PET here stands for positron emission tomography, that could... See evidence of amyloid plaque buildup in the brain during life was invented. And this was actually invented by Bill Klunk and Chet Mathis at University of Pittsburgh. And what they did, which was very creative, was they took the same dyes that are used to identify amyloid plaques after death at autopsy, and they made what we call a pet tracer, something that you can give in the blood that would get into the brain and bind to the plaques during life and this allowed us to now see evidence of amyloid plaque buildup in the brain. Initially, this was really a research tool. Um, The compound that was developed by um, Pittsburgh was used in research for about the last um, eight or nine years, but two years ago, the FDA actually approved the first PET tracer to identify uh, amyloid that could be used uh, clinically. And the likelihood that if a PET scan says you have amyloid in the brain, that you have amyloid at autopsy is extremely high. The, most of the studies have suggested that's over 97 or 99% in some studies. So the PET scans are very good at picking up this deposited form of amyloid that we can now see in life.
0: Here's Dr. Small again.
5: And then the third imaging category is functional imaging. And function is sort of fuzzy to define, but very, very generally, it means that it looks at metabolism. Areas of the brain that function more require more blood, oxygen, uh, energy, and so you have more metabolism. And there are many, many ways of measuring metabolism. And those three imaging tools could be nicely organized according to what, are, what is sometimes thought as the three pathophysiological stages of Alzheimer's disease. Ultimately, Alzheimer's causes rampant cell death. When, you're, when you have an area of the brain that has a lot of neuronal loss, you have shrinkage of that brain. Structural imaging can capture that. An earlier stage is sometimes called the histological stage. You have plaques and tangles. You might not have cell death that could be captured with histological imaging. Some would maintain, although you know these divisions are not as uh, crisp as I'm describing them, it's just sort of a, a, a model, some would maintain that the earliest pathophysiological state of Alzheimer's is a metabolic problem. Uh, there's no cell death, the plaques and tangles are just forming, they're not quite there yet, but the neuron is starting to malfunction. Not dead, malfunction. That, in theory
0: at least, could be captured by functional imaging. For all these high-tech tools, though, often the most powerful thing a doctor can do is sit down with the person they're trying to diagnose and talk to them. Asking good questions about how and when and why they first noticed what about their particular memory issues can often be enough to point a doctor who specializes in dementia to a pretty darn accurate diagnosis. Here's Dr. Richard Isaacson, director of the Alzheimer's Disease Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medical Center here in New York.
7: I can definitely say that, you know, in neurology, a diagnosis should be made based on the history at least 80 to 90 percent of the time. And it's no different um, whether you're trying to uh, diagnose a patient with memory loss or dementia or whether uh, you're thinking your patient may have a stroke or, uh, or migraine or, or whatever else. Uh, the history is absolutely essential. A detailed history, we ask the right questions and the patients give you the answers uh, that they are aware of. And then you use the family uh, as, as corroborative history. Um, I mean, at least 80 to 90% of the time, uh, a good neurologist in a setting where they have complete information should be able to make an accurate diagnosis.
0: And here's Dr. Karlawish. And that'll get you pretty far
7: along um, in terms of
2: deciding, gee, this turns out to be, hmm, I don't think it's Alzheimer's. Actually, I think it is depression with anxiety and, you know, I don't think adequately diagnosed and treated sleep apnea together with a couple prescription medicines that are probably under uh, mistakenly dosed. So we got a lot of things to clear up here, you know. that's History's going to get you there.
0: In addition to taking detailed histories, doctors can also administer a series of neuropsychological tests basically puzzles and questionnaires that are designed to pinpoint cognitive problems. These can often yield remarkably specific results, partially because we've also gained a lot of knowledge recently about what different parts of the brain do in regards to learning and memory. And so finding a particular kind of memory difficulty can point to a disorder of a particular part of the brain, which can in turn indicate a particular disease. Here's Dr. Small
5: the memory classification system we have tests that we can administer in our offices and then more formally we have neuropsychological tests which are essentially more precise and challenging cognitive tests that allow us to localize the problem so if someone thinks what's that word i'm thinking of that's a retrieval problem, right? Because you've learned the word many years ago. You don't need the hippocampus to learn the word. You've learned it already. It's a retrieval problem. If you're saying, "Um, who was that person I met last week? What was his name? That's probably a hippocampus problem. Once you know where, your list has shrunk. So if it's hippocampus, we know it could be one thing and not the other, or two or three things and not five other things.
0: So let's say that you've convinced your mother, your father, your husband, your friend to recognize that they're not remembering things as well as they used to. You've gotten them to a qualified doctor who's performed a battery of tests and come back with a diagnosis. And yes, in fact, what we're dealing with is early-stage Alzheimer's disease. What now? It's very well reported that there's no cure for Alzheimer's disease and no current therapy that directly affects the cause of it. As we heard in the last episode, that's largely because science isn't convinced they even know the cause of it. But it's important to realize that it doesn't mean that there's nothing that can be done. There are a spectrum of symptomatic and lifestyle treatments that can often delay the most dire consequences of the disease, especially if they're begun early. Here's Dr. Isaacson again.
7: I think too many doctors and I think too many family members get really discouraged. They um, kind of lose hope before they've even tried anything at all. And I think a lot of people out there are jaded. All things considered, um, there are not perfect treatments for any cognitive impairment. That being said, there are absolutely things that we can do, multiple things, um, both pharmacologic, drugs, vitamins, uh, a few supplements, medical food, as well as um, uh, non-pharmacologic or lifestyle approaches.
0: Among these available tools are several FDA-approved medications for the treatment of Alzheimer's
8: disease. Here's Dr. Tetsuyuki Maruyama from the drug company Takeda. This doesn't often get mentioned, but it is quite significant. There are symptomatic treatments for Alzheimer's disease available now. Uh, the anticholinergics uh, and then uh, uh, memantine, which is a, a modifier of a different uh, neurotransmitter receptor. Um, and, and they do provide benefit for... People with milder Alzheimer's disease for uh, maybe the first year or two in which that, that dementia has been died, the early stages of dementia have been diagnosed. So we know that it is possible to restore some degree of cognitive function. Three of the four drugs that are currently
0: approved for the treatment of Alzheimer's are called cholinesterase inhibitors. And they work by helping the brain produce more of a chemical called acetylcholine. They were first developed in the 1980s, and it gave a huge boost of enthusiasm for the Alzheimer's research community, which previously hadn't had any success in coming up with a useful drug. To talk a bit about how they work, here's Dr. Peter Davies, scientific director of the Center for Research on Alzheimer's Disease at North Shore Long Island Jewish Hospital's Feinstein Institute. He was one of the scientists who originally developed these drugs for use with dementia patients.
9: The brain functions largely by communication between cells by neurotransmitters. Um, These are chemicals that are released by one cell and the message is picked up by the neighboring cell. And acetylcholine is one of the chemicals that's used um, for this communication. And a deficiency of acetylcholine is expected to produce things like memory impairment, confusion. And it took a number of years, but um, now three of the four drugs currently approved for treatment of Alzheimer's disease are um drugs intended to replace this deficiency, or to make good this deficiency.
0: Unfortunately, this idea wasn't as effective as they had hoped.
9: They help a little bit, um, but not very much. I mean, the efficacy of drugs to treat the acetylcholine deficiency is not spectacular.
0: They are widely prescribed, though. And doctors do find them useful in delaying symptoms, particularly as part of a holistic approach to therapy. Here's Dr. Karlawish, followed by Dr. Isaacson.
2: You know, I sort of have a two cheers for the cholinergic hypothesis, which created the drugs like the cholinesterase inhibitors, such as dinepazil and uh, uh, rivastigmine and um, others namely you can seek effects on cognition um, they somewhat maybe translate into some functional effects and maybe that lasts for a bit of time after years and years and years of study the effects are there they could be picked up greater than noise um, but I think the balance of uh, the consensus is that they're modest effects um, and uh,
7: but they're available There's those drugs and I, I, I prescribe them You have to be very careful when you use these drugs. You have to start low and go slow, that's my mantra. I'll then, at the same time, um, use very specific, very low-risk additions. Uh, For example, I'll use B-complex vitamins. Each thing that you do helps each other work better. In my clinical experience, we hit patients with an evidence-based and safe uh, kitchen sink approach uh, where we add things on incrementally, uh, I would say at least 30 to 40% of patients stabilize, uh, at least for the short term. 30% of patients will, will in fact improve, and uh, 30% of patients, probably, probably no matter what you do, just patients will continue to slowly decline.
0: And while researchers continue to work toward a cure, it's important that they're also working toward making these symptomatic treatments better
8: and better. Here's Dr. Maruyama. There is no effective treatment that modifies the course of the disease. That's certainly true. So people who are taking the symptomatic, the, the, the currently available treatments still inevitably decline at some point um, uh, to, to, um, to more serious dementia. But having said that, there is still a need for um, better symptomatic treatments. Um, it may well be that while we're all very focused on saying how can we stop dementia in its tracks, we may also be able to say, well, how can we give better treatment to people who have Alzheimer's now to improve their function so that even if uh, function declines, they're still declining from a higher level? Um, it's been a very difficult challenge to identify uh, treatments that may improve the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. But um, and and I think we should continue or even renew our efforts to do that. Yes, if we develop a disease-modifying treatment that means nobody gets Alzheimer's anymore, they won't need these symptomatic treatments. That will be a wonderful day, and I'll be very happy to retire any symptomatic treatments when that day comes. But for now, there are a lot of people suffering with dementia, and, and they could use help today. And interestingly... If we can continue to improve this multimodal approach
0: so that it works for more people with the disease and pushes their symptoms back further and further, that actually might be the real breakthrough the world needs. There's an excellent recent example of this kind of approach doing tremendous good for people suffering from a different disease, AIDS. There's still no cure for AIDS. People who have the virus will have it for the rest of their lives. But finding and tweaking a cocktail of symptomatic drugs has completely changed the prognosis for someone who contracts it. It used to be a death sentence, and now it's basically a manageable chronic condition that someone can live a happy, productive life with, dying at around the same age as people who don't have it. And so, if we can improve symptomatic treatments for Alzheimer's so that someone might technically have the disease, but not develop dementia until their late 90s or older, so that most people live out their entire lives without impairment, Practically speaking, that would be as good as a cure.
8: If we can delay the onset of dementia long enough that people can live out their normal lifespan, whatever that is, then that's effectively a cure. Um, Could we ensure that if people lived to 200, they would never get dementia? Um, I I don't know. It's up to somebody else to figure out how to get people to live to 200.
0: (laughs) It's also really important for people who are living with Alzheimer's or caring for someone who is, to educate themselves, learn as much as they can about the disease and what their options are. There's actually scientific evidence now that being informed has tangible therapeutic benefit. Here's Dr. Carloish.
2: Randomized controlled trials, many of them paid for by federal grants from the NIH that have shown that if you can educate a family about what is the patient's current problem and educate the patient as well, uh, and based on their problems, Uh, train them in how to deal with those functional problems and help them anticipate and plan for the future, that those patients do better. Um, They're less likely to experience behavior problems, uh, which is particularly important because uh, the worse behavior problems a patient has, the more likely we should see them declining and more likely to ultimately be placed in a nursing home, for example. And so those kind of interventions can have real long-term benefits, not just for the patient and the family, but for society in terms of the use of long-term care services. So, I mean, that requires um, getting access to education and
0: training. And there are a lot of resources out there for people who are dealing with dementia to get that kind of education. To begin with, the Alzheimer's Association has branches in dozens of cities around the country that offer training, support groups, and referrals to doctors and other resources. And their national toll-free helpline, 800-272-3900, is staffed with experts 24 hours a day. And if you're listening to this show and wondering if there's a way that you can help this effort, help find new treatments for dementia, well, there might very well be and that's volunteering to participate in a research study. Here's Ms. Barkin.
3: One of the challenges of Alzheimer's disease is the, in America, in the United States, we have an obligation to do science a certain kind of way in order to make sure that a therapy is actually going to work. And as you probably know, there's phase one, phase two, and phase three. And They have, for each medication, each therapy, and their testing is extremely expensive. We know that. So money is one resource that's required. But more challenging and difficult is the other thing that's required, which is clinical trial subjects. These are not mice I'm talking about. These are human beings.
0: Participation in things like drug trials is historically extremely low for people with Alzheimer's. Less than 10% of patients, as supposed to more than 90% for some forms of cancer. And it's not too hard to figure out why.
3: Alzheimer's disease is particularly challenging because many of the people who have the disease, the majority of people who have the disease, are already seniors. They're already older. So just picture this. You're an 85-year-old individual and you're married to somebody who's 86. And your 86-year-old husband has been ill with Alzheimer's for a few years and he's taking some typical medications and now it's been requested that he go into a clinical trial. So you ask, you know, what's required? Well, what's required is for you to go in a taxi cab or a bus or on your own to an institution, hospital, research center, have some sort of therapy, possibly a blood test, possibly non-invasive, would be just, you know, cognitive testing, and then reports you provided, and then you can go home again. Well, it sounds really easy, but if you're 85 years old and you're caring for somebody, it's extremely hard just to envision yourself doing that on a consistent basis. Days like when it rains and we have these horrible storms in New York throughout the winter, Most people who are ill with Alzheimer's disease, they just want to stay home and they are really tired. And caregivers, even those who are not 85, the last thing in the world they want to do is be obligated to get up in the morning and take somebody who can hardly walk, dress them, put them in a car, take them to a place and bring them home. The outcome of this is that many of the studies that require clinical trial subjects are extremely challenged. It's extremely hard to find people It's extremely hard to find people who are appropriate subjects and who are willing to stay in these trails for any length of time.
0: The research community needs to continue to find ways to make it easier. Because without large-scale studies of real people, science simply cannot move forward. And a cure for Alzheimer's will not be found. As we heard in the previous episodes of this series, there are many exciting new studies that are looking for candidates right now. And, because science is looking to try some of these new anti-amyloid treatments earlier and earlier in the development of the disease, some of these are open to people who do not have dementia. Anyone who's the right age can apply. One of these is that A4 study run by Dr. Sperling and her colleagues at Harvard, which we heard about in some length last time. These are also proving difficult to fill, though. Because to be accepted means that you have significant amyloid buildup in your brain. Which, as we heard, many scientists feel is a strong indicator that dementia is in your future. And just as people who are having memory problems are reluctant to get diagnosed with dementia, many who are cognitively fine right now would rather not know that they have a head full of amyloid. There are even debates right now in the research community whether it's ethical to tell someone who doesn't have cognitive impairment that they have something like amyloid buildup, when it's still so poorly understood exactly what that might mean for their future. But that's the crux of this problem, because studies like these are very likely the only way that we'll learn. If you or someone you know would like to see if you're eligible to participate in a dementia research study, there are several online databases where you can check. Three of the biggest can be found at alz.org slash trialmatch BrainHealthRegistry.org and endalsnow, While many in the scientific community are looking for new and better medical treatments for dementia, or maybe even a cure, many others are approaching the problem from a different angle, finding better ways to care for the people who are living with it, Health and wellness and lifestyle treatments might be, especially in the short term, just as important as new drugs or imaging techniques. More and more major hospitals are building memory centers. More and more services for the elderly are using the latest scientific thinking of dementia to find better and better ways to give people who are suffering from it and their families better and more fulfilling lives. We'll meet some of these people who are developing better, more effective ideas of how to care for people with dementia, and on the ground activating those ideas right now. Next time on the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode is presented by the Academy's Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative and made possible by the generous support of the Dana Foundation. It was produced by your host, David Hoffman, scientific oversight by Dr. Cynthia Duggan. Special thanks to the experts who appeared in this episode. Ruth Drew of the Alzheimer's Association, Drs. Richard Mayu and Scott Small of Columbia University, Llewellyn Barkin of the Alzheimer's Association of New York City, Dr. Jason Carlowish of the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Dina Davis of Lehigh University, Dr. Richard Isaacson of Weill Cornell Medical College, Dr. Risa Sperling of Harvard University, Dr. Tetsuyuki Maruyama of Takeda Pharmaceuticals, Dr. Peter Davies of the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research. For information about the New York Academy of Sciences Alzheimer's Disease and Dementia Initiative, including upcoming events, publications, and challenge grants, please visit www.nyas.org slash whatwedo Alzheimer's.